Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Sophia. And I'm Ed. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're continuing the wedding series with a trip to a society wedding. We'll discuss the public fascination with the personal lives of the rich and famous. And we'll look into the careers of Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart as we discuss the 1940 classic, The Philadelphia Story. Sophia, welcome back. Thank you. Well, so good to be back. Hello, Ed. Also, welcome back. And I must say, Ed, this is now your third episode. And episode three is traditionally where we welcome someone as an official uh, regular guest host of every rom-com. So who I have I have made it. Yeah. So you're now our official token male. Or if we're gonna go with the wedding series theme, you can be our best man. So yay. Anyway, I'm glad to have you guys both on. Um, we're covering a classic movie today, which we have not covered enough of on the podcast. In fact, The Philadelphia Story is now going to be the oldest movie we have covered on the podcast so far. And that's mm-hmm. something I aim to change in the future. But I kind of wanted to know from you guys, like, what are some classic movies that you love? And by classic, I'm since we're like Gen X people, I'm going to go with like 1960s or earlier, even though like today the kids are calling like Top Gun a classic movie. So <laughs> I just feel so old right now. Thank you. You've ruined my day. Uh, I'm a big classic movies guy. Like if I sign up for a cable package, I have to have the one that has Turner classic movies. The reason I signed up for HBO Max is because they have the, the TCM selects section in it. I love Cary Grant so much. Uh, Pretty much anything he's done, especially his comedies or his suspense stuff with Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. I love, I mean, everyone loves Casablanca, right? Right. Yes. You have to by law. Uh, And then I'm a giant devotee of the Thin Man series. Oh, cool. You're also a fan of the Thin Man series, Sophia? What else you got? You know, I don't, I've, watched the thin man i was really young i lived with my grandparents and my aunts my two aunts this is along with like my immediate family um and that like those films were what they grew up on so i watched all that stuff um as a young child um because they were like reliving their heydays so thin man all that i haven't seen the thin man in a really long time it'd be worthwhile to go back to and what um, are your favorites what do, what do you- oh i've got on the waterfront yeah man um, I love Laura. Do you know Laura? Yes. Ed? I love Laura. I mean, I love um, Rebel Without a Cause as well. Yeah, there's some Hitchcock. And I will, my favorite Hitchcock is um, with Jimmy Stewart. It's um, Rear Window. I mean, I can go on and on, but those are a couple faves. Classics. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, for me, I think I was thinking about this deeply. And a couple of rom-coms I like are It Happened One Night I think that's one of the ones that would be mm. a go-to for me. I really liked Bell Book and Candle that we covered, but yeah. it was it was a really kind of out of nowhere um, incidents for that movie to come into my life. 
I also really love musicals though. And I think that's the, those are the classic movies that I most saw when I was younger. Like I watched the music man, like a zillion times. I could probably sing that entire um, soundtrack. And of course the sound of music is my favorite of all time. And then I love on the town and I love the romance in it, but I love the lady cab driver romance. The others I'm just kind of like, whatever, but I love the lady cab driver. I'm really hoping we'll cover some more classic movies in the future on the podcast. Like I was even on the Force 5 movie podcast and neither of us in our top five had anything before 1980. And I felt kind of sad about that. So hmm. we got we to gotta expand our horizons here at every rom-com. Okay. I think hey. when we get to finally do a musical, rom-com musical, we'll hit some of those old ones for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. And, yeah. and you can sing the entire episode. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I like that. I don't know. I think maybe the internet has already had enough of my singing. I'm not sure. (laughs) Never, Jen, never. Well, before we get started with today's episode, just some reminders. First, as always, we will have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we'll warn you when the spoiler section is about to start. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Rom-Com Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at every rom-com and our Twitter handle is at every rom-com pod. And you can always find the podcast at every rom-com.com. Send us feedback at feedback at every rom-com.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate review and subscribe to us on Apple podcasts. So you never miss an episode. Also be sure to check out Ed's podcast, the greatest song ever sung poorly at sungpoorly.com, where you can hear him and his co-host, Adam Wainwright, interview some fascinating people and give you the lowdown on all things karaoke. And now let's listen to part of the trailer for The Philadelphia Story. No, you're slipping red. I used to be afraid of that look. The withering glance of the goddess. I didn't think that alcohol would do... Oh, shut up. Oh, please, Mother. Maybe he's going to soccer again. It's what everybody feels about you. It's what I first worshipped you for from afar. George, listen. First, now, and always. Only from a little nearer now. Hey, darling? I don't want to be worshipped. I I want to be loved. Someday over the rainbow, way up high... What is this, Connor? Oh, easy, easy, old man. She's not hurt? No, no. Not wounded, so but dead. Seems the minute she hit the water, the wine hit her. Now, look here, Connor. A likely story, Connor. Hello, Dexter. Hello, George. Hello, Mike. You have a good mind, a pretty face, a disciplined body that does what you tell it. You have everything that it takes to make a lovely woman except the one essential, an understanding heart. And without that, you might just as well be made of bronze. And the night that you got drunk on champagne and climbed out on the roof and stood there naked with your arms out to the moon, wailing like a banshee. I told you I never had the slightest recollection of doing any such thing. What in the name of all that's holy am I to do? Tracy. Yes, Mike. Oh, Parson Parson, he's never seen Kidridge before, has he? Now look. I got you into this thing, and I'll get you out of it. Will you marry me, Tracy? So, The Philadelphia Story, 1940. 
directed by George Cukor, written by Donald Ogden Stewart, based on the play by Philip Berry, with contributing writer Waldo Salt. And the basic premise of our film, The Philadelphia Story, is about this socialite named Tracy Lord. Um, Very important to know, she's divorced from her first husband, C.K. Dexter Haven, uh, and she's about to marry a new man, George Kitteridge. The day before her wedding, Tracy's ex-husband arrives with a reporter and a photographer from Spy Magazine, posing as friends of Tracy's brother. The reporter and the photographer have been assigned to get a behind-the-scenes story of the wedding. Tracy is forced to deal with her ex-husband, her estranged father, and the reporters, but the real conflict comes from Tracy confronting her own personality. So there are a lot of interesting things to know about this movie, but kind of the main story of the Philadelphia story when we talk about film history is that this was sort of Catherine Hepburn's comeback after people had kind of counted her out in the film industry. So in 1938, Catherine Hepburn had been placed on the box office poison list, which was a famous list which appeared in a 1938 ad in the Hollywood Reporter placed by the Independent Theater Owners Association. And the ad had a number of other actors on it who they felt were being paid inflated salaries and losing uh, the movie theaters money, according to them. And a lot of famous actors were on this list, including Mae West, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Marlena Dietrich, and a lot more. After Hepburn was placed on the box office poison list, she was given worse opportunities by her studio RKO. So she ended up buying out her contract and moving home to Connecticut. And when she was in Connecticut, she met up with playwright Philip Berry, and he had previously written a play that she had appeared in the movie version of Holiday with Cary Grant. And some sources say that Berry wrote the play The Philadelphia Story partly with Hepburn in mind for the lead. And she ended up taking that part and she performed it on Broadway at first, forgoing a salary and just taking a share of the profits. That ended up being like a really good decision because it did incredibly well on Broadway. It ran for 415 performances. It grossed 1.5 million. And then there were 250 more performances on tour, making 750,000 more dollars. So that was just a phenomenal run for a play at the time. And Hepburn's uh, former lover, which I didn't even know that she was with Howard Hughes. Um, Apparently I need to learn a lot more about Hollywood history. But he bought her the film rights for the Philadelphia story for $30,000. And then Catherine Hepburn turned around and sold the film rights to MGM for $175,000 plus a $75,000 salary to play the leading role again. So she had a pretty sweet deal. Her contract also gave her script approval, the ability to choose the director, and the ability to choose her leading men. So she chose George Cukor, who she'd worked with many times before, But her original choices for the leading men were Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy, but they were both unavailable. It's hard for me to imagine the movie with those two. Maybe Clark Gable. I don't know. Maybe Clark Gable. Yeah. Yeah. In order to do the movie, Cary Grant asked for top billing and a salary of either $100,000 or $137,000. Like sources differ on that. But he ended up giving his salary to the British war relief because, of course, um, Europe was already involved in World War II at the time. And the movie was made for a budget of about $900,000 and made a little over $3 million. So also very successful. And that ended up erasing Catherine Hepburn's reputation as box office poison. So hence a comeback. 
The movie was successful in other ways as well. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay. And it ended up winning for screenplay and getting Jimmy Stewart a Best Actor Oscar. And the Philadelphia story remains kind of beloved. It's ranked number 44 on the American Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest American films of all time. And it's on a lot of best uh, film lists and best rom-com lists as well. So yeah, this is a generally beloved film, but I had only recently seen it. I believe both of you guys had previous experience with this movie. What is your relationship to this film? What do you think about it? The thing I love about this movie is it is just barely under a screwball comedy. Like it's not quite a screwball comedy, although it still has some of those elements, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a far different tone than Grant and Hepburn together and bringing up baby. And it actually plays really well with some class issues that you don't often see treated without like being hit on the head with it. It's in there, but it's not, it's not like it's a wonderful life with class commentary. It's a different kind entirely. Yeah, I think I initially saw it because it was these three great actors that I enjoy in other films. It's a rom-com, and um, and so I just watched it. And I, I loved it. I thought it was so funny. Fabulous acting with Jimmy Stewart and Katherine Hepburn, uh, their chemistry especially. And then, But it had been a while, and so watching it now, well, that's probably been 15 years at least. I was had some issues, <laughs> which uh, we could talk about later. Jen, I know you did too. Um, but it, it still, it still strikes me that it's still on this like 100 greatest films of all time, you know, despite it's, you know, from a feminist perspective, it's, uh, uh, is anybody talking about that? Um, anyway, we will later. Jen. Yeah. So yeah, I watched this movie for the first time, at least that I'm conscious of this year, because it's possible I saw it as a child and forgot about it. But yeah, so I was expecting it to be more romantic, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, the first time I watched it, and I don't want to spoil anything, but I did not really buy into the romantic outcome of the film or some of the ways romance or love was treated in the movie. When I watched it again, um, having been pre-disappointed... <laughs> I came to like the comedy a lot. So I do appreciate mm -hmm. the movie for its comedy. Um, mm -hmm. Jimmy Stewart is freaking hilarious in this. Um, yes. Virginia yes. Weidler, who plays the little sister, is, oh, I love God. her. Love she's her. She's gold, right? Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Yes. I, like, I like me some Ruth Hussey. She's great. And I like all the main performances. I think everybody acting wise does a fantastic job. And I mean, the dialogue's good too, but like the problem for me is the general themes of the movie and the, yeah. and the plot of the movie. I'm just like the messages were just like, uh, yep. and we'll, and, yep. yeah, we'll go into that later. Um, and if, and if, for, and if a movie has a message that I'm just like really leery of, it kind of spoils a lot of it for me, but I can see that the parts are really good. And mm. after, and I, yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about it later. We'll get into it later, but do you guys mm. view this? Do you guys view this movie as a romantic movie more or a comedy more? It's definitely a comedy more. I mean, yeah. the, the if it, if there if there was a category called a flirting comedy that that may be what it is there's more flirtation than romance in this film that's great ed that's perfect <laughs> yeah so we're going to go ahead now and talk a little bit more about the cast and crew and i'm going to cover katherine hepburn and it's appropriate that i do because i had before watching this movie and doing the research for this podcast i have to admit that i wasn't a katherine hepburn fan and it wasn't 
it wasn't really based on much. I'd only seen a few of her movies or little pieces of them. And I just, I don't know. I just kind of found her annoying. And I hate to say that now because now that I've learned more about her life and seen more of her films, I feel like that was really unfair of me. And, and I should be sort of like slapped across the face a bit, but <laughs> rough you up a little bit for that. Yeah. I need more respect. Terrible here. opinion. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah, my opinion of her really changed. And uh, Catherine Hepburn, uh, some information about her. She was born in 1907, and she was born to kind of a wealthy family. She graduated from Bryn Mawr in 1928, so that's quite close to where this movie is taking place. She started her career on Broadway, and then she went under contract to RKO. And George Cukor, the director of this film, she had quite a good relationship with him. Her film debut was in one of his films, A Bill of Divorcement, in 1932. And she ended up making 10 films total with George Cukor. And I'd love to cover George Cukor at another point in our podcast. She won her first Oscar for the film Morning Glory in 1933, and that would be one of four Oscars she would win for acting in her career. So she still holds the record for actor with the most Oscars won. So that's amazing. Some other important work before the Philadelphia story included two of her films with George Cukor and Cary Grant, Sylvia Scarlet and Holiday, Little Women, which was also with George Cukor, Stage Door, and Bringing Up Baby, which was also with Cary Grant. But despite making all these great movies, she was pretty, she was sometimes very maligned in Hollywood and in gossip magazines. Um, I have a quote from filmschoolrejects.com. The author is Anna Swanson. It says, when she tried to assert control over her career, she was viewed as bossy. With the pressure on her to conform to traditional roles for women, she wore slacks made for men, kept her personal life hidden from the world, and never settled down to have kids. When she didn't want to reveal the details of her life to the press, Hepburn was dubbed Catherine of Arrogance and was also called the most maligned woman in Hollywood. And actually that last part about being the most maligned, that was Cary Grant talking about her saying she was unfairly maligned. So I'm glad that he was sticking up for her. Okay. And then after she did the Philadelphia story, Hepburn began a run of nine movies with Spencer Tracy, starting with woman of the year. And that includes um, Adam's rib, Pat and Mike desk set, and much later guess who's coming to dinner. And Hepburn and Tracy also had a 26-year-long affair because Spencer Tracy wouldn't divorce his wife because he was Catholic. So that affair was revealed after his wife's death. And some of her other work after the Philadelphia story included The African Queen, Summertime, Long Day's Journey into Night, Suddenly Last Summer, The Lion in Winter, the TV movie Love Among the Ruins, which was also directed by George Cukor and which she won an Emmy for, and On Golden Pond, which was her last Oscar. Uh, award. And her final appearance was in a TV movie called One Christmas in 1994. So she had a very long career. And she, in 1999, she was named the top female screen legend of all time by the American Film Institute. And yeah, at this point, now that I've been schooled, I can't really say that I could disagree because she's won more Oscars than anyone. She's done an immense, incredible body of work. And I don't think her acting has ever been the fault in a movie she's appeared in. So yeah, I'm sold on Katherine Hepburn now. And then uh, the another star is Cary Grant, who plays C.K. Dexter Haven. Grant is originally from England, and he was his real name is Archie Leach. Uh, he was born in 1904. Um, he had a difficult childhood, apparently. Um, Dad left home when he was 10 and committed his mother to an institution, but told his son that his mom had died. And Grant didn't find out she was alive until he was 30. Sad. Um 
Grant ran away from home uh, to join a comedy troupe as a juggler when he was 13. I really love that. Um, (laughs) But at the age of 20, he left the group while he was in New York to try to make it on his own. And he began performing on Broadway. And he moved you know, eventually moved to Los Angeles um, and was under contract with Paramount Pictures, who changed his name to Cary Grant. I guess Archie doesn't scream. <laughs> Leading man. Star, you yeah. know. Uh, his first feature film was This Is the Night in 1932. And other prominent work before Philadelphia Story included a series of May West films, uh, which were Blonde Venus, She Done Him Wrong, and I'm No Angel. Uh, there's Topper, The Awful Truth, His Girl Friday, which I love, and three previous movies opposite Catherine, as we said, Sylvia Scarlet, Holiday, and Bringing Up Baby. After the Philadelphia story, much of his best known work is with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, he was in Suspicion, Notorious to Catch a Thief, and North by Northwest. Other important works uh, are Snick and Old Lace, None But the Lonely Heart, Night and Day, The Bishop's Wife, An Affair to Remember, That Touch of Mink, and Charade. His last film was Walk, Don't Run in 1966. And then rounding out the big three of the cast is Jimmy Stewart playing Macaulay Mike Connor. I get to do this one because Jimmy Stewart was born in Indiana, Pennsylvania in 1908, and I currently live in Indiana, Pennsylvania (laughs) right now. Our crosswalk signs have a impersonator doing Jimmy Stewart's voice to say, the walk sign is on for South Philadelphia straight. And it's it's like, this is the the only town where a Jimmy Stewart impression goes over with people under the age of 50. Uh, Oh, I suppose. (laughs) Darn it. (laughs) That's fabulous. He graduated from Princeton with a degree in architecture, but graduated during the Depression, so there were a few jobs. So he got into acting instead, starting on Broadway. His first IMDb credit is a short called Art Trouble in 1934. In 1935, he signed a contract with MGM. Some important films before The Philadelphia Story included After the Thin Man, You Can't Take It With You, Made for Each Other, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Destry Rides Again, and The Shop Around the Corner. He enlisted in the Army during World War II. According to the Jimmy Stewart Museum, Stewart entered the Army as a private and at the end of World War II was a colonel in the Army Air Corps, fully decorated as the result of the 20 combat missions he flew over Germany as leader of a squadron of B-24s. Can I just say I have so much respect for that? Like I like yeah. I, I'm not like very pro-war, but World War II is a notable exception for me. And my God, that yeah. is dangerous. Anyway, yeah, right. I mean to leave a good career. Yeah, you and know he didn't you're have doing to. well during the war, and yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, and he also continued to serve in the Air Force Reserves after World War II, eventually reaching the rank of a brigadier general. His first post-war role was perhaps also his most famous in the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. After World War II, like Cary Grant, Stewart worked with Alfred Hitchcock in the movies Rope, Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Vertigo. Other important post-war movies included Harvey, The Spirit of St. Louis, Bell, Book, and Candle, which you guys covered in episode three, Anatomy of a Murder, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and How the West Was Won. He also appeared on TV, including a sitcom, The Jimmy Stewart Show, from 1971 to 1972, and a crime show called Hawkins from 1973 to 1974. His last IMDb credit is in 1991 for voice work in An American Tale, Five Will Goes West. 
He won an Academy Award for the Philadelphia Story, an additional Lifetime Achievement Award, and received four other Oscar nominations for acting. And Jimmy Stewart died in 1997. And some other people of note who appear in the movie are Ruth Hussey playing Liz Imbry. The- who just eats up every scene she's in. She's the best. <laughs> yeah. 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 She plays the photographer who accompanies Jimmy Stewart's journalist to the house to report on the marriage. And then Virginia Widler plays Dinah Lord, who is Tracy Lord's little sister. Very, the precocious youth character in the movie. Oh my gosh, she's so good. <laughs> and so precocious. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're ready to get into the movie. Um, so I thought it was interesting that the opening credits of this movie roll over an illustration of a house, like a big manor house. And you also, the first shot you see is of the house. And it's almost like this house and this manor are bigger than the people in it. Do you guys get that impression or is this just me making symbols out of things? Um, I guess I hadn't thought about it, but I think you're probably right. Just knowing some of kind of what this is based off as we're going to get into here like that. That's a shit ton of wealth, man. I think it's important to get that scale. Yeah, it probably goes into the the class stuff that we can talk about a little bit later, too. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to put in really quick, though, that this house in the Philadelphia story may have been based partly on the one that inspired Philip Berry when writing the original play. And that house is called Ardrossan and was home to the Scott family and Hope Helen Montgomery Scott, who is widely believed to be the inspiration for Tracy Lord. And she was a friend of the playwright. And yeah, the original play, The Philadelphia Story, was dedicated to Hope and Edgar Scott. And Ardrossan is still around today, although most of the estate has been sold off. It was built in 1911, and it had 50 rooms, marble staircases, and a ballroom. And it sat on 850 acres with a stable, a dairy, a swimming pool, although I think a little bit different than the one in the movie, and a number of outbuildings where like members of the extended family were like living at the time. So it was quite wealthy. And it's located in an area um, of Pennsylvania called the Main Line which is about 17 different towns west of Philadelphia, which were connected by a railroad built in the 1830s. And mainline society, what I read about it, it was said to be kind of modeled after English aristocratic lifestyle. So who your family was, was important. Old money was important. And so that kind of plays into some of the themes that we're going to see in this story. I just thought it was important to situate that. And if you want to learn more about Ardrossan or see pictures of it, I will include links in the show notes where you can check out the original house. So the opening scene is actually a flashback scene. Um, it's told without dialogue. We we see C.K. Dexter Haven storming out of the house with his golf clubs and there's his possessions are by the side of the house. And then, you know, he throws his things in the car and then out comes Tracy and she's got his little pipe stand and she just drops it. And, oh, she has the golf clubs and then she breaks one over her knee and she walks away from him, turns her back on him. And and then he comes back up to her and taps her on the shoulder. And she turns around and he makes like he's going to hit her. Like he's got a fist. Instead, he takes his hand over her face and pushes her down and then storms <laughs> off. And then we cut to her, you know, rubbing her neck. Both of their expressions are kind of like, you know, they're not fiery, ragey. They're kind of like, you're going to get it. And she, you know, he pushes her down and um, by the face. And then she looks at him rubbing her neck like that, that guy of mine. Or, you know, good riddance, you. And so kind of playfully. And then 
it fades and it says two years later. So this was my introduction to this film, right? That I'd heard right. called a romantic comedy and I'm seeing it for the first time, you know, yeah. in 2022 at 45 years old. And I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm your opening to a rom-com. Like, I mean, I'm, hell? <laughs> I'm already attuned and um, I'm used to like looking at older films and kind of being like, okay, like that was a different time. These were different mm-hmm. norms, but it was still a little bit like, whoa, <laughs> like what's yeah. going on here? Um, casual domestic violence time, but... <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Like, but we all grew up watching stuff like this. It's interesting. Is it, does it, does it still work for you guys? Like in some way, like, cause you saw it when you were younger. So maybe like you just like have a attachment to, you know what I mean? Like, and I right. wouldn't judge you if you did. I mean, I probably didn't think of it when I was a kid, you yeah. know, younger because well, right. Like everything was, was violent. Uh, you know, the the cartoons the, the wily coyote and the and the you know was always getting banged up and even now like when my daughter was smaller anytime like people were getting hurt or falling over or people were like smashing each other with like pies or something she's laughing her butt off and i'm like why is she laughing at the violence but like we all did and like i said they you know they have this like perky little music over yeah, it and yeah. making it like lighthearted and kind of yeah. cute so you're you're you have that going, meaning like, oh, this isn't that serious, but like I know, like you said, casual domestic abuse. Like, what the hell? I don't know. Still it's not good. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. I had any thoughts on this? Like, did like did you remember this? Like, was it is this something you saw in your childhood? Like I didn't watch this until I was in my twenties, probably. Okay, okay. I didn't read it in a way other than it was very much a piece of its time. Yeah. Mm. And it does not feel out of place in the grand context of media from that era. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, I contextualize it. I contextualize it that way too, but yeah, it still was like, like the being the first scene, I was just like, Whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah. Then we get to this two years later, we see a wedding notice about Tracy Lord, marrying George Kittredge via a newspaper. Cause like they like to do an old film so often. And we immediately get introduced to a family dynamic between Tracy, her mother, and her sister, Dinah. They're in the process of, like, displaying and recording a number of, like, really expensive wedding gifts on this big table. And your first introduction to Tracy, the mother, and the sister is that basically the mother and the sister kind of follow Tracy's lead. But at the same time, they seem to kind of think that she's a little bit too hard or demanding or cold or something because Tracy apparently has encouraged her mother to kick the father out for infidelity. And Dinah would much prefer that Tracy had remained with her first husband. What do you guys think of these characters in this domestic situation? Again, looking at it through my lens now, I'm like, geez, Tracy's right. (laughs) And like, what's their problem? And that's all. So Tracy's sister still wants her to be with Dexter, but Tracy's engaged to this man, George Kitteridge. This is her new fiance. And the movie sets him up as kind of a, you know, not a good choice for Tracy. Uh, he, everyone thinks he's kind of adult because he can't mount a horse. He, he likes publicity. And later we find out he doesn't know about sailing terms and, he was working class and he's made his way up and he's the general manager of Quaker state coal now. Um, so he's new money. Mm-hmm. I think that means something in mm-hmm. this film too. They don't, <laughs> again, it's not heavy handed, but it's there. So yeah. there's our George Kitteridge fiance. 
Yeah, the horse thing and the sailing thing are just both. And, and also the not wanting, caring about his privacy thing. All of those things are meant to show that he is not high class, basically. Yeah. 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 And which, uh, so I feel like right. this movie does say things about class, but like some of them are kind of, for me, conservative, I would say. What do you mean? Well, just like um, the idea that you should stay married to people in your social class. Like you shouldn't, uh. Uh, you know, that new money is like something to be ashamed of sort of, you know right. what I mean? It's very, oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. So Dexter meets with spy magazine to bring some tabloid type journalists to the wedding to cause some chaos. Macaulay doesn't want to be a society snooper. He wants to write his short stories, but it's a great opportunity for him and Liz. So they go along. Dexter brings him to the house and much of the humor is the middle class interacting with the upper class surroundings. Uh, Connor prank calls the family from their house phone, which I thought was hilarious. This is the voice of doom calling. Your days are numbered to the seventh son of the seventh son. <laughs> and and uh, it, like, it really does show that like, even in a subdued comedic role, Jimmy Stewart is just hilarious. Yeah. And people sometimes forget that about him because he's also so earnest, but the man was funny. Connor's opinion of Tracy before meeting her is the young, rich, rapacious American female, because that's how she's been presented to the world. So how would he have any other opinion of her other than that? Yeah. And the interesting thing is um, uh, Connor and Liz are introduced to Tracy and her family through their possessions, really, before they even meet the family. So they're just seeing this like mm. ridiculous, lavish display of some sometimes useless looking wedding gifts. And like, mm. there's this like funny bit with Jimmy Stewart and like the butler or whatever, where Jimmy Stewart's looking at the wedding gifts and then the butler's looking at him suspiciously. And then Jimmy Stewart's not helping the suspicion by kind of like showing that he hasn't stolen anything, putting his hands up. It's, it's great. That, like very cute. So, yeah. No words. All action is fantastic. <laughs> it's an, it's a good setup this scene because between Liz and, and Connor, you know, they're talking he's like i don't want any of this she's like i trade places with tracy lord any day give it to me you know like and she talks a lot about like yeah i don't want to do this either but gotta eat you know yeah. gotta gotta get through the winter it's a it's another good setup of their differences and what they their needs out of life you know yeah liz is very practical yeah mm -hmm. and, and 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 clear-sighted in a lot of ways yeah so bringing in these journalists, like one of the themes in the Philadelphia story is the pressure of being a society person and being under a microscope. Like the entire situation in this movie is kind of caused by Tracy being under this pressure and she really doesn't want publicity. And the journalists also really don't want to be in this position either, but they have this clamoring public that wants to know all about people like Tracy Lord. And I was kind of curious to find out more about like what society gossip was like in the 1930s. I honestly did not find out too much, but I'll go over a little bit about what I did find out about the history of celebrity gossip, which first of all, um, according to Shondaland.com, newspaper gossip columns have been around in some form as early as 17th century London. I couldn't figure out what the equivalent of spy magazine would have been in the 1930s, but of course there were famous gossip columnists in the 30s and 40s like Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, but they mainly concerned themselves with the lives of Hollywood or Broadway personalities. And I'm sure all three of the, act the main actors in this movie had dealt with being the subject of gossip columns, maybe especially Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. So it probably had some sort of resonance for the actors themselves. 
So the equivalent to Liz Imbrie's character, the photographer hired by the newspaper, you know, kind of serving the newspaper today might be the paparazzi. And I looked into that a little bit. And this really doesn't have a ton to do with the movie, but it's so interesting, I have to tell you anyway, that the word paparazzo and paparazzi were actually coined by Federico Fellini in his 1960 film La Dolce Vita, because the name of the photographer character in the movie was paparazzo. And paparazzo was Italian slang for mosquito. So I love that a movie has given us this term that is with us today. Yeah. And (laughs) perfect, perfect word. Little mosquitoes. Liz is not much like a mosquito in this movie. I mean, she is sneaky, but um, she doesn't come off badly, I don't think. But just like obsession with celebrity lives has just been with us for a long time, whether it's society, people and rich people, royalty, or whether it's... um, actors and actresses and seems to hold like a lot of interest for some people in terms of weddings too. There's also been a lot of attention to celebrity weddings and like, what are the weddings you guys would think of when it comes to celebrity weddings? I mean, the first one one that comes to mind is princess Diana and (laughs) Prince Charles wedding. Yeah. Yeah. And then the subsequent ones, like I was at work and we were all like, with my boss and everything like online watching snippets of that, <laughs> you know, nobody was working. Everyone was looking at, uh, wait, Prince, which one Prince, um, you know, the one who's going to be King. What's his name? I Prince don't William. know. William, <laughs> duh, William, William and Kate, their wedding. And I totally watched Harry and Megan's wedding. Yeah. I watched that shit. I did that. Uh- I am the exact opposite. Like I have no interest in a celebrity wedding. I won't watch it. I'll barely even read about it. I'll read the headline. I'm like, Oh, that's enough. They're married. Cool. Right. Well, are there any that are in your consciousness, Ed, despite this disinterest? Because I feel like even though I'm also disinterested in them, of course I know about princess die, you know, and Prince Charles right. like, that was huge in the eighties. And I, I kind of, I can't really, couldn't really recite off their names, but I know about the ones you're talking about too, Sophia. And I have like sort of vague ideas that Ben Affleck was married to a lot of people and Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and Jennifer, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, all that, Aniston, yeah. whatever. Like, Ed, are there yeah, okay, any that, that penetrated your, your universe despite your best efforts? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I I get what you're saying with that, but no, I mean, I know who is married to who because I, but it's not like, it's not the wedding I'm thinking of. It's okay. that, that uh-huh. union. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I like I, I couldn't tell you what they wore. I couldn't tell you what their song was. I couldn't tell you right. where right. it was. Like, none of that. Like, okay. Okay. yeah, they were married. They're not anymore. That's it. Yeah. 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 Same. Same. Maybe when I was younger, I would have cared about, oh, the wedding stuff. But um, not now. Do you know any that. dresses, though, Sophia? Do you know any dresses from the royal weddings? The royal weddings? Um, I mean, I, I appreciated... Uh, Kate's dress because they talk about like the lace that was made and I love I love that shit you know what I mean like as far as like costume and embroidery and mm-hmm. history and like the sweet little flowers that were put in they all mean something and I I mean that's like my art I love that kind of thing okay. so you know that's that's what I think is cool but like I don't know I don't remember the designer of like Megan's or anything like yeah. that I don't remember that what have you yeah, yeah, well, fair enough. I thought you might be yeah. the one who would know the most just because of the royal thing, Sophia. So I was kind of counting yeah. on you. <laughs> okay, so above and beyond that, though, do you guys have any interest in like famous people's personal lives? Like, are you following famous people on Instagram or Twitter? Like, is any of it for their personal lives? I follow the funny ones. Like, it's not any personal life thing. Like, if somebody's regularly posting something funny, I'm like, I need that little dopamine hit. I will follow them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I follow... Amy Sedaris because her shit's funny. Like she just puts funny stuff up. So great. Like there you go. 
So no gossip interest from either of you on that level. No gossip. No. Okay, I will cop to following Chris Evans because he constantly posts pictures of himself looking hot with his dog. So okay, I appreciate I, that. That's I good I, stuff. I admit that. Um, <laughs> yes. I guess I'm interested in Chris Evans' relationship with his dog. How about that? That's 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 fair. That's and good. I will also admit. Okay, I'm admit, I'm the one admitting all the embarrassing things here now, guys. Like I'll admit that after love the last season of UK Love Island, I did follow the accounts of the couple who won that season because I liked them and I want to see if they stay together. Okay, so that's the extent of my guilty pleasure awesome. celebrity following. I think that that's we fantastic. Well, I followed the recent news. Totally guilty of like celebrity. Well, divorces and that kind of stuff. I don't know if I want to like date our podcast. I don't have Johnny any Depp idea. Oh, and Amber okay. Heard stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and the whole time I was watching, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. But like, I was, I was aware. Yeah. But, you and know. so, why do you think you followed that or cared about it or paid attention to it? You know, I'm- there was a bit of a mindlessness to it. Um, there's a freaking war going on. There's like a, you know, trial for insurrection on January 6th going on. And it was a kind of a way to be like, I don't know, watch someone else's kind of slightly lame drama. Escapism um, essentially. Like a little just, bit, a yeah. little bit. Possible reason is because it's such a different life. Mm. You know what I mean? People mm-hmm. like socialites who like aren't really doing anything, but they're just crazy wealthy. Like that's kind of mysterious. <laughs> Yeah, and it could, and there might also be an aspect of like coveting that lifestyle. I think too, perhaps. So, Ed, do you like have any theories yourself of why people are interested in celebrities despite your disinterest? I think it's uh, people like successful, funny, attractive people. It's something to focus on. It's a diversion from everything in your day to day. Yeah. I think I think that definitely is part of it. Yeah. And I, I also went looking for information on the internet from people like who might have other ideas about this. And I did find an article on LiveScience.com and there were scientists speculating on why people might care about celebrity lives. So I found this interesting. Daniel Kruger, who's an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Michigan, said it might have to do with status hierarchies, like mm-hmm. in our sort of evolutionary past. And he says there's a few reasons we might care Quote, one is just learning what high status individuals do, so you might more effectively become one. And two, it's basically political. Knowing what is going on with high status individuals, you'd be better able to navigate the social scene. So Hmm. I found that interesting because like Hmm. as much as we're living in a modern world, we still have a lot of like uh, remnants sort of of our biological evolutionary past, right? And so mm. this might just be a weird adaptation of when we were living in like these tribal societies to like this modern technological world where our tribe is like everybody in the world, right? Yeah. So like wow. Yeah, I I, I don't cool. know. It's a theory anyway. I thought it was interesting. Anyway, everyone is apparently interested enough in Tracy Lord that they have sent this photographer and this journalist undercover to observe her. And now we're going to see what happens with that. And Tracy immediately sees through the ruse. She doesn't trust Dexter at all. Um, She doesn't trust Connor or Liz at all. And it turns out that Dexter invited them to prevent the magazine from running a story on Tracy's father, who's been shacking up with a dancer. And it's at this point that Dexter alludes to Tracy's attitude toward him, quote, the withering glance of the goddess. So it's the first 
from other people besides her family, I think, that we kind of start to see, especially how the men view her as like this goddess and this untouchable uh, deity, I guess. It seems that Tracy's sister and mother both really love Dexter. And at one point, like, Tracy and and Dinah leave and the mother is like, oh, dear, what now? And the way that uh, Dexter kind of comes up to her, like for a second there, I was like, do they have a little thing going on? Like, I don't know the way that she's like looking up at him, like only you can save us, Dexter. I was like, OK, um, I don't know. Did you see that? Did you kind of feel a little creepy? <laughs> uh, it didn't no. feel creepy to me, but it definitely felt like one of those people that becomes part of your family and like whether or not you want them there, they're always going to be part of your family. Yeah, I just, uh, I just was like, I felt sorry for Tracy here because like she's getting married to somebody else the next day, and her family is like bringing in her ex and being like, "Oh yeah, come hang out with us." And right, it's like, right. And it's like, you know, I'm actually friends with like all my exes, like, or I want to be anyway. And like, but I can understand if you didn't want to be, and then your family's like bringing somebody in. You're like, what is going on here? And why is my family not being loyal to me, but rather yeah. being loyal to this other person? Mm, it would, yeah. I, I I pretty much sympathize with Tracy through the majority of this movie. I don't know. Especially this part, because, like, doesn't Dinah say something like, Is, do you think he'll soccer again? Like, I know. Are we, like, we're happy about that? Like, what are you, what yeah. Are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Weird. Anyway, so, yeah. So Tracy is seen through this ruse on the part of, like, Dexter and these journalists. So she decides that she's going to have a little fun and she and Dinah are going to like put on an act for the journalists. Like before this scene, we've seen them kind of wearing like casual clothes, like even pants and just like hanging out and being kind of normal people. But they're going to like give these journalists the impression of what the upper classes are like, uh, sort of an exaggerated version. And I've got a clip of that, which I think this is one of the funniest parts of the movie for me. How do you do? My brother Junius, are you not? No, I, we, I, I am I, Dinah Lord. My real name is Diana, but my sister changed it. I'm Elizabeth Imbry. This is Macaulay Connor. Oh, chante de beauvoir. Oh, chante de faire votre connaissance. I spoke French before I spoke English. My early childhood was spent in Paris where my father worked in a bank. The house of Morgan. Really? C'est vrai, absolument. Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time. Listen. Lydia, oh Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Oh Lydia's a handsome lady. She has eyes that folks adore, so and the torso even more. So Lydia, what is this? Lydia, the queen of tattoos. On her back is the battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus, too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. Ah, oh, Denise, tu es un véritable petit chopin. Mais qu'est-ce qu'il y a? Voyons, tu es toute pâle. Mon droit talent. Oh, j'espère bien que ce n'est pas le smallpox. Le smallpox? Mais oui, va dire à maman de se dépêcher. Oh, how do you do? I'm Tracy Lord. It's so nice having you here. <laughs> Fantastic. The best. It is the best part. So I just wanted to say, like, as Eddie Izzard said in Dress to Kill, 
if you don't understand French, that was fucking funny. <laughs> do, you, do you guys understand enough of the French? Not even slightly. Okay, no. so like after Dinah plays that song, like she she goes up to Tracy goes up to her and she's like, "Oh, you're a veritable Chopin." And then and then she says, "Show me your tongue. I hope that it's not the smallpox." Because they were talking about smallpox later earlier. Yeah. I don't know. It's just funnier when you hear it in French, though, and they're referring back to these other conversations they had, and they clearly think these people don't understand their French. I don't know. And then at the beginning, Dinah's just saying like really simple things like, oh, I'm so happy to meet you. Like just normal stuff. But I just found the French so funny, like the effect that it had. And they, it was legitimate French. Oh, fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I gathered that. I gathered. Yeah. And I love the, I love the song ahead. choice, Lydia the Tattooed Lady. Uh, 1939 song, which first appeared in the Marx Brothers movie At the Circus, performed by Groucho Marx. But I know that I heard it first with the Muppets. <laughs> fantastic well it's adds to the hilarity that they're like you know she's like oh i speak french and i'm she's standing <laughs> on point shoes you know ballet point shoes and coming in with this diamond necklace it's a gift for uh uh tracy and then this song the lydia yeah. the, it's so so <laughs> not upper crust <laughs> yeah that, that really. to me that's like one of the funniest contrasts in the movie and i also like that like they're using these like at that time contemporary references right like yeah. They've got this song from 1939. Then they've got later on, you'll hear somewhere over the rainbow. And it's mm -hmm. like to us, these are like old things, but that was the current moment. Then those were current references. So it's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when Tracy comes in, she sends Dinah out, you know, it could be the small packs. And then Tracy starts to interrogate the reporters. It's very funny. You know, even, even uh, Connor is like, who is, who is interviewing who here? And she gets it out that Liz was married before and Connor didn't know that. And he's really upset. And she asks if they're in a relationship and then they kind of, oh, well, you know, and very uh, telling about Tracy's personality. You know, she's able to like take over and, you know, be in charge. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciated that section too. And yeah, the whole relationship between Liz and Connor, though, it's like the entire time I'm like, what is going on with these people? Yeah. Yeah. And also, I guess it's interesting too that like Liz is also somebody who was married before and I presume divorced as well. So you've yeah. got two women who have been divorced in the same movie now, mm -hmm. which must have been a little strange in like 1940 because it wasn't that common. The divorce rate was very low at that time. And they have another problem where they're trying to re impress the reporters. They're embarrassed that their dad isn't around. So they have their uncle Willie there. Who's kind of like, is he like sort of drunk or is he just like a lech? I can't really tell what uncle Willie's. He, yeah. I believe he's supposed to be drunk and kind of a lech. I feel like he's almost uh, not, not, not WC Fields type, but kind of trying to get there. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they have uncle Willie lying around. So they just, go up to him and they're like, ah, dad, papa, or whatever. And they make him pretend to be Seth Lord, the father. And which ends up being somewhat unfortunate when he starts pinching Liz's butt all the time. So, yeah. So sleazy. <laughs> He's so gross. So the thing that when I was talking about why this movie kind of bothered me, like the theme and the story, is that I felt like if there's a problem in this movie, if there's like, sort of a theme in it, it's that Tracy's personality is kind of the problem of the film. Like, mm -hmm. usually in a story like this, that somebody has to overcome something. And to me, it seems like the message we're supposed to get is that Tracy has to overcome basically who she is. 
Because in the movie, everyone's always commenting on her, like C.K. Dexter Haven, Tracy's father, Tracy's sister, and even her mother at times are criticizing her attitude towards Dexter, towards her father, and just kind of like the way she behaves in general. Like different people call her a goddess, justice with her shining sword, hard, a statue, a prig, and a perennial spinster. God forbid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like even her fiance who has admiring words for her uh, sort of feels like it's, he's at a distance from her. He says, you're like some marvelous distant, well, queen, I guess you're so cool and fine and always so much your own. There's a kind of beautiful purity about you, Tracy, like a statue to which Tracy replies, I don't want to be worshiped. I want to be loved. And Mm -hmm. so there's, there's this feeling in the whole movie, like it's saying that there's something wrong with Tracy, that she's keeping people at a distance by essentially being herself or in my opinion, by having like standards for what standards. she wants. Yeah. 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 So like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, she's, I think has every right to be pissed that her dad is like, going off with some dancer young woman you know and it's like and the mother's like oh but now i'm alone and it's like well i don't know why don't you go find somebody new like (laughs) what you know are you alone i don't know um and that the the you know that tracy had the audacity to uh kick dexter out because of his drinking and he hits her like what of course like i don't know you have every right to do that and the yeah the fact that tracy has yeah standards and everybody seems to have a problem with that and you know i i love that she says i don't want to be worshipped i want to be loved and i feel like they put her on a pedestal like you're Mm. this way and i'm just this you know Mm. i don't know now see for for me uh i have a different take i mean obviously yes this is very much an objectification issue it's very much a male gaze but also like every gaze issue when it comes to Tracy Mm. at the same time Tracy doesn't seem happy really at any point and Mm -hmm. that might obviously you don't want to go changing people but you know some people need to change for their benefit I mean if this wasn't the 30s if this was now this could all be solved by going to a therapist (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. but yeah no I mean I, I she does need to change not just for not just for what everyone else wants for her but what she wants for herself she does set herself up as aloof and separate, which can lead to a more worship-oriented relationship with other people. To love and be loved, it does require people to be on the same level of some form. Mm. I feel some like... Some vulnerability, some transparency. Some fun. Some fun. I feel like though, okay, and this is my, this is probably my personal baggage, but like people definitely, when I was younger, some people found me to be aloof uh, or they found me to be sort of like Tracy, like an unapproachable. And I'm sure they probably didn't think I was fun, but like it was because people ahead of time would, would criticize me for being smart or giving answers in class or for like having these kind of like traits that were kind of like that they maybe envied or felt bad about that they didn't have in themselves. And I was like perfectly willing to be like friends with people and like be open with people until they started making fun of me. And then I was just like closed up. And I wasn't until much later in my life that I was able to like have open relation, like open, it's a different meaning here to have like, (laughs) (laughs) 
to have more vulnerability, to have more vulnerability with people, because finally I met people who hadn't immediately pre-perceived me as like a nerd or somebody who was above them, but people who just saw me as like another worker at the movie theater or just, you know, the girl who likes ABBA or so, I don't know, like just like things that had nothing to do with my schooling. And so I can totally understand if you're in an environment where people are criticizing you for maybe being independent, like Tracy is outspoken, like she is, which were not popular things for a woman to be at the time, like how you would shut off from people at a certain point, because it would be like, you would have to sacrifice yourself to be, or you'd have to put yourself on a level that you weren't on. You know, it's like, I don't, I feel like, and later we can talk about this because I do feel like there's one man in the movie who sees Tracy for who she is. Like, and I think even before she, you know, is drinking or before she's letting loose in any way, he sees her for who she is. And like, yeah, I mean, okay. Well, not a spoiler. It's, it's Connor. Connor eventually sees her for who she is and she doesn't need to drink first for him to do that. He already perceives it in her. It's, it seems like a false dichotomy here to me that like, she either has to be cold and worshipped or she has to like be a different person to be loved. I feel like she just has to meet somebody who sees her like who for who for who she is and who isn't threatened by her, honestly. Exactly. Right. She has an opinion and she's in she has an intelligence. And yes, many people are afraid of that, intimidated by it. Men certainly are. Not all the time. Some men are. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I just yeah. Well, we're we're about to talk about these these guys, and <laughs> we can mm-hmm. see we can make we could see what we make of them. So we have another clip. Like I could go through like all of Dexter's dialogue towards Tracy, but I think it would be actually more useful to just like sort of listen to some of it. And this is not in the time order of the movie. This is like a few things have happened, but Dexter basically finds Tracy with Connor, and they're about to take like just a daytime swim, but their daytime swim is interrupted. And Connor gets to sit around awkwardly while they're having this conversation. So here we go. Hello. Fancy seeing you here. Orange juice? Certainly. Now tell me you've forsaken your beloved whiskey and whiskies. No, 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 no. I've just changed their color, that's all. I'm going for the pale pastel shades now. They're more becoming to me. How about you, Mr. Connor? You drink, don't you? Alcohol, I mean. Oh, a little. A, li- a little. And you a writer? I thought all writers drank to excess and beat their wives. You know, one time I think I secretly wanted to be a writer. Dexter, would you mind doing something for me? Anything, what? Get the heck out of here. Oh, my dear Red, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be fair to you. You need me too much. Would you mind telling me just what it is you're hanging around for? Oh, no, no, no. Please don't go, Mr. Connor. Oh, no, no. Please don't go, Mr. Connor. As a writer, this ought to be right up your street. Don't miss a word. I never saw you looking better, Red. You're getting that fine, tawny look. Oh, we're going to talk about me, are we? Goody. It's astonishing what money can do for people. Don't you agree, Mr. Connor? Not too much, you know, just more than enough. Now, take Tracy, for example. There's never a blow that hasn't been softened for her. Never a blow that won't be softened. As a matter of fact, it even changed her shape. She was a dumpy little thing at one time. Only as it happens, I'm not interested in myself for the moment. Not interested in yourself? You're fascinated, Red. You're far and away your favorite person in the world. Dexter, in case you don't know... Of course, Mr. Connor. She's a girl who's generous to a fault. To a fault, Mr. Connor. Uh, Except to other people's faults. For instance, she never had any understanding of my deep and gorgeous thirst. That was your problem. Granted. But you took on that problem with me when you took me, Red. You were no helpmate there. You were a scold. It was disgusting. It made you so unattractive. Mm, A weakness, sure. 
and strength is her religion, Mr. Connor. She finds human imperfection unforgivable. When I gradually discovered that my relationship to her was supposed to be not that of a loving husband and a good companion, but... Oh, never mind. Say it. But that of a kind of high priest to a virgin goddess. Then my drinks grew deeper and more frequent, that's all. I never considered you as that, nor myself. You did without knowing it. So the thing that I love about the Hayes Code, and for obvious reasons, a lot of us don't like the Hayes Code because it was a government morality censorship type of thing that controlled the content of what could and couldn't be released. You couldn't show somebody in a positive light if they were, you know, sexually promiscuous or if they were in some kind of crime thing. So there was like no nuances why like all the bad guys were like just bad, bad guys. And like all the good guys were just good, good guys. And the thing I love about it though, is it forced people to be clever. I mean, that was a lot of flowery language for Dexter to tell Tracy, you know, we don't fuck enough. Hmm. I mean, maybe like, I mean, he does say virgin goddess. So like, yeah, there is like the question in my mind, like, did they even consummate their marriage or was this like a two day marriage that like blew up right away? I don't know. Or were they just not sexually compatible? Which again, goes back to my whole thing that they all need therapy in this and they should have worked this stuff out, but then we wouldn't have a movie. Or if she's already like, feeling disgusted by his behavior she can just withdraw you know and with withhold because he didn't quite meet her standard of like what you know it made you so unattractive almost like a singular lysistrata tactic that not against mm. war but like i will change your behavior mm-hmm. by changing mine mm. perhaps what's, what's interesting to me about this dialogue is that you could read in just a whole range of things that went on in this marriage though. Like on the really pessimistic side, you could think that Dexter was getting drunk every night, hitting her sometimes. And when she says disgusting, she's basically underplaying what happened to her. Um, Mm. It it made you so unattractive. You were hitting me every night. Like, I don't Mm. know. That is a possibility because we don't know exactly what happened with them. And Mm, right. And on the other end, you could say maybe he drank a little bit and she didn't like him drinking at all. So she withheld sex. I mean, there's a whole range of things that you could presume here. What bothers me and makes me feel like Dexter is more of the problem is that at one point he says that I started drinking more because of you. Like Mm. towards the Mm. end of that dialogue, he blames her for his drinking, which cannot be a healthy dynamic. I mean, right. And and this is not the only time Tracy's going to get blamed for something that's like not her thing in this movie. Right. I don't right. know. It's like, and also if like he had such, if Dexter had such a bad experience with Tracy, what is he doing hanging around? You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, why does he want her back? If she's, yeah, if she's such like an unrelenting scold and like no fun, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, it just feels like you could read almost any type of situation into this dialogue here. And I guess as a woman, like I will automatically maybe wonder if as, as a woman who's a feminist and who knows what things were like for women in earlier decades, I will automatically be a little suspicious and be like, is she at fault here? I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. Um, right. I think she has faults. Let's okay. I think she does uh, maybe not give people a chance. You know what I'm saying? Like she has a high standard for herself and demands that of other people. But um, 
yes, I like what you pointed out that this blame for his bad behavior on her because she was like this. I drink more. That's yeah. That's I think bullshit. Like take some responsibility. We all bring our personal stuff into things like this, and uh, mine is that I'm half in love with Cary Grant, and I can see him never doing any wrong. <laughs> yeah, sure. I just love Cary Grant. He's kind of the greatest, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine a different actor actually having the charisma to make him sympathetic to me in any way to me, because like he does manage to be a little bit sympathetic to me, despite the fact that like the whole time I'm like, really, dude? Like, yeah, because he's right? a very charming personality. Yeah, and part of his big motive here is to protect Tracy's father. He knows it'll be devastating to her, you know, and, and th- that yeah. she doesn't like the limelight on them. And if it comes out into the papers that her dad's been off with the dancer. Yeah. So his, his motive there is from a good place. Yeah. So he is doing a good deed. And then this conversation that I clipped continues, um, Dexter starts saying something. I think at this point, Connor's already left. He's like, he's sitting there the whole time looking really awkward. And then finally, Jimmy Stewart leaves, which is amazing. Like, he's just so great as like the awkward third party in this conversation. And mm-hmm. I think Connor's left by this time. And Dexter says, the goddess type has a certain appeal. And then he says, quote, this citadel can and shall be taken. And I'm the boy to do it. End quote. And it's like, we've seen that before. I think like in other movies, this thing where guys just want to take down like a woman they perceive is hard to get or like aloof or something like that. And I'm like, is this part of the appeal for Dexter? Like, does he actually like this thing that he's criticizing? I don't know. Hmm. At the end of the scene, Dexter leaves Tracy a present, which is a model of the boat, the true love. And that's the boat on which they spent their honeymoon. And Tracy accepts this gift. And like, after Dexter is left, She's talking to George, her fiance, about the boat. And she said, my, she was Yar. And George has no idea what that means. Yar means easy to handle, quick to the helm, fast, bright. So this becomes important later on in the movie. It's used kind of as a, I guess, a symbol or a metaphor. So Tracy and her father have a fairly complicated relationship. Seth Lord may or may not have had affairs, but either way, like a lot of the other characters in this movie, he blames all of his issues on his daughter, Tracy. He says cheating is caused by a reluctance to grow old, but that a daughter can cure that quote. I think a devoted young girl gives a man the illusion that youth is still his with a girl of his own full of warmth for him, full of foolish, unquestioning, uncritical affection, and then delivers the line that seems to really hit Tracy. You have everything it takes to make a lovely woman except the one essential, an understanding heart. And without that, you might just as well be made of bronze. Again, going back to the whole object, statue, pedestal thing. What do you guys think about that? Because I obviously don't have like a father-daughter relationship. I have no kids. I'm a guy. I had a dad, but that's not kind of how our dynamic works. So what do you guys think? I think it's creepy and incestuous when he's basically saying that he needs a young girl in the form of a daughter to prevent him from having an affair with someone Yeah, it makes me want to throw up, like, so violently disgusting, like, uh, and then, and then Tracy calls him a coward. She's like, you coward. And he's like, oh, no, it's not my, you're the one that's, like, what? Yeah, wow. 
I mean, like, Sophia, did this remind you at all, like, when he says, like, cheating is caused by reluctance to grow old? Did this remind you of Moonstruck? Where, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> where, like, Rose right? is like, it's because you're afraid of death. You're going to die. afraid of death. <laughs> you're going to die, Cosmo. You know, I wonder if that, that might have some truth. I don't know. Um, I, I think it probably think, does. But <laughs> If you think about a lot of classic movies, like, that that's a trope that plays into, like, the seven-year itch, the tender trap. Uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's probably some truth to it, but it's like the cure for being afraid the cure to die. For it, I know. Is, is w- your daughter has to be, what does he say again? Um, full uh, of foolish, unquestioning, uncritical affection. So essentially, like, they just want, he wants Tracy to be just like, oh, dad, you are so wonderful. You are so uh, great. Like, like that's, oh, no. oh my God, that's so gross. Like, I just, oh my God, if that's your. I mean, coming as a parent and like all the things I'm learning as a parent, this idea that you're growing, you're not growing many yous, you're growing functioning human beings, you know, and this Mm -hmm. idea of like, you know, I don't know, it's a little sentimental, but like, they're yours, but you're, you're growing them up to let them go and to like be their own people and shit like that. Like if I sat around and expected our daughter to be like, mommy, Everything you say goes, you know, I mean, I sometimes wish they're just going to break kid, you know, but no, she fights and questions everything. Um, and that's great. I want a girl like that. Children are not your ego gratification machines. Like 100%. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I, yeah. So Seth Lord is on my shit list. Like there's nothing 100%. in this movie that redeems him to me in any way. And like, um, yeah. Yeah, like he has like all this money. He has a wife who loves him and takes him back. And yeah. like, well, like what the fucking entitlement? Like, oh, it's okay. And then yeah, the wife is just like, okay, no props, come back. Like, ooh, I, that pisses me off too. Also, like, the the wife seems to be full of foolish, unquestioning, uncritical affection, but like she's just too old apparently. <laughs> you know what I get? I mean? Yeah, right. It's I don't know. Be a young woman. Yeah, I call bullshit on Seth Lord. All day long. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Anyone have anything else? Uh, counterpoints about him? Can anyone think of anything? No, good I mean about I, he, he, he's functionally indefensible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's now. So yeah, and then the other line though about she needs an understanding heart, like that. Yeah, that's the one that gets to her though. And she's, I think, at this point, she has already heard a similar thing from Dexter, mm-hmm. and she hears this from her mom, and she hears this from her sister all the time. Like she's too hard, like etc. We can pick out what the elements of truth might be in there later. I'm not going to say Tracy's perfect in any way. Right. And I do think it's important for people to be forgiving of other people. At the same time, though, I think this movie's trying to equate being understanding and forgiving with owing somebody your love, affection, or, you know, yeah. consent to be their wife. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So now we come to Tracy and Connor, and Tracy and Connor, like, okay, I ship it. <laughs> I'll say um, a little mm-hmm. bit anyway. Mm-hmm. I like Tracy. We see them at first at the library and Tracy has gone there to read Connor's book. Wearing a really weird hat, by the way. I don't know what. <laughs> I'm like, are you going to bed? This little <laughs> like nightcap thing? Or are you going skiing or something? Like, what is this? I don't. Maybe, yeah. maybe like really rich people in the forties had to wear like, like reading hats or something. <laughs> uh, this is my library hat. You know, this is what I, my little cap. Anyway. Tracy's come there to read Connor's book. Um, Connor finds her reading his book. 
and she admires his book. And like, I feel like their chemistry right away is good. Like, and she's admiring something about him that he values, which is his writing. And he doesn't find her immediately unapproachable in any way. Like he's just hanging out and talking with her. I don't really understand them. She admires one of his stories and I'm not really sure what we're meant to make of this. She admires one of Connor's stories called with the rich and mighty. And Connor says it's based on a proverb with the rich and mighty, always a little patience. Do you guys have any theory as to why that proverb is seeded into this movie? Cause Tracy would like people to have a little patience for her. Hmm. And you know, it's so much about perception and what, people perceive the rich and famous do or not even famous just the rich do yeah i think that's why she likes it as well ed said it perfectly i just i'm wondering like if if there's a larger message about class that is implied by it too but i don't know anyway connor connor ends up walking out of the library with tracy and walking towards the home with tracy and he was supposed to meet liz so this gives you one of jimmy stewart's um this, this is Jimmy Stewart, like in every freaking movie he's in, he's got this like long suffering female companion that like is in love with him and treats him so well, is very loyal to him. And then he totally pushes her aside as soon as like the hot new thing comes through the door. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like even Bell Booking Candle, he has this like, you know, fiance who he forgets about. It's not really his fault that time, but every other time it's like vertigo, whatever, like forget it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I always feel so sorry for them. But yeah, like he walks off with Tracy and they already seem to have chemistry towards each other. Like, what do you guys think about their relationship? They have a great chemistry. And I think the reason is Connor has never met her before. Mm. He has no baggage that he's bringing in aside from his general disdain with the upper crust. But as he talks to her, he finds out more about her. And because he's seeing her with fresh eyes, He's not bringing years of history to that interaction. He's mm-hmm. and he's a writer. He's genuinely curious and he wants to find out more. And I think that goes to like, I guess, things I was saying about myself from before, like when when people viewed me as aloof when I was in school and stuff and like they had a preconception of me, it was really hard to form relationships with them or to like, um, yeah, to make friends at my high school. And then when I went and started working in a movie theater, like the people there had no baggage with me. So yeah, that, that all tracks for me. It's like, you need this person who doesn't have all these weird preconceptions about you to come in. And yeah, I like their dynamic. And I like that he's a writer. Interestingly, like, I think a lot of times writers are also the self-insert characters of the people writing things. So I wonder if this is Philip Berry's um, persona in a way, the screenplay, hmm. the, the playwright. I mean, that's a theory I have. I think a lot of times the writer in a story is the, the person who's writing it in some way. And, you know, I wonder, I'm going to be cynical here. Uh, you know, she compliments his work. Mm-hmm. Like, what if she was reading it and be like, this is drivel? I mean, would he be as uh oh you know, yeah. would he let his guard down? You know what I mean? Or would it just feed into his preconceived idea of this, you know, upper class female American or something like that, whatever he says early in the film. Well, I mean, so. nobody wants to be told their writing is bad. So and that's just bad. That would be bad for him anyway. That would be impolite to like just go up to somebody and be like, your writing is drivel. So Oh, no. Well, I mean, this is Tracy. She would, don't you think she'd tell him straight out, be like, um, uh, no, no, sir, I, you, you know, I don't know. I think she's, she has probably better social graces than that, at least. But 
Yeah. I don't know. She ends up liking his writing so much though, that she offers him a house to work in. Like she's just got spare houses hanging around and he doesn't want that because he doesn't want a patron me. I'd be like, I'll take the house. (laughs) They go, then they're going to go swimming, which never happens. I'm really sad about that. I'm sad that Tracy, we don't get to see Tracy and Connor swimming and it gets interrupted by Dexter. Like what kind of beautiful relationship could have happened without that? I don't know. But uh, we do get to see them in like these robes, which I don't know. It's weirdly by wearing those robes that cover up everything. It actually suggests more to me for some reason. Like I'm like, could they be naked under those robes? Did that have the effect on you guys too? Or is that just me? No, it did. Well, what I thought about Tracy's robe in particular is that she looks like a statue in it, right? Oh. Like some kind of robed statue goddess. that's good yeah thank you because she's in it with that argument with her father uh or or with dexter then she's swimming and she's in her swimsuit with george then the thing is back on when she's when her dad is criticizing her and calling her you know cold-hearted and blah 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 yeah that had to be intentional good call thanks Yeah. yeah you notice the costuming you're very good at that thanks i try i mean i enjoy it so yeah so yes, I, oh, I had no reaction to the robes whatsoever. It never occurred to me what might be under them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you are. That's that's how my mind operates. Apparently. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let's see. So they don't get to go swimming, and after her, and then after Tracy has confrontations with Dexter, and then her father. Tracy has now been driven to drink. She could even go and blame her father and Dexter for her drinking problem if yeah. she wanted to. That's right. That's right, damn it. Look at what they did to her. They drove her to like four glasses of champagne. But um, no, we just we have Tracy start drinking, like, because she is so dispirited by this entire situation. And this ends up leading to some interesting scenes with Connor, both at her pre-wedding party and afterwards. But because I want to like keep those scenes for people who've seen the movie, we are now going to begin the spoiler section. So if you want to see the Philadelphia story unspoiled, please uh, bow out now and come back when you've seen it. All right. So we have now gotten to the big party that everyone's getting ready for. And Connor and Tracy start dancing and they're fun and cute and flirty together. And they keep drinking. They they get progressively more drunk. And George wants to, uh, it's time to get going. He wants to scuttle her, uh, Tracy, out of there. And she's like, oh, no, let's keep having fun and let's keep dancing. Isn't it like 4 a.m. at this point, too, when George wants to leave, though? And they're like getting married the next day? (laughs) I mean, I guess that's how um, the the super rich do it. I I know, 4 a.m., my goodness. (laughs) I'm I'm like, you know, I don't really like dig the character of George that much. But I'm thinking like, yeah, if it's 4 a.m. the night before you're getting married, like, you know, maybe George is on to something there. I don't know. It doesn't look like anybody's going home. It looks like it's just, you know, just change your clothes at like nine and then go on to the next party, I guess. So uh, at some point, I don't know, I forgot how this transitions, but Connor gets a lift to CK Dexter Haven's house. And uh, he just shows up drunk with more champagne. And uh, it's a hilarious scene with Jimmy Stewart being drunk, where where it's, it's fairly improvised. Jimmy Stewart 
uh, has, has his character Connor hiccup. And Cary Grant didn't know that Jimmy Stewart was going to hiccup and he's trying to keep a straight face. There's, he kind of looks down and smiles a little bit and, and is trying not to laugh. And then he, uh, and he says, like, excuse me. <laughs> you know, and then <laughs> Cary Grant says, excuse me. <laughs> um, yeah. Once you, brilliant. once you know that's improvised and you watch it again, it's so funny watching them try not to crack up. It's like, they're just like admiring each other's humor at that point. Like as actors, yeah. like there's a yeah. micro moment where you can see that. Yeah, it was funny. And the reason the reason that Connor has gone to CK Dexter Haven's house is that he wants to he now feels I think sympathetic towards Tracy and so mm-hmm. now he wants to like plot the downfall of his boss at Spy and like blackmail the boss at Spy into not running these stories about Tracy's family. He he's kind of like gets Dexter involved in this scheme. Somehow after all of this happens, um Liz pulls up with Tracy, who is drunk and passed out in the in the passenger side. And Liz gets roped into typing the story while Dexter narrates the story to her. And Connor gets sent home with Tracy. Connor, in fact, gets to drive drunk, <laughs> drive Tracy drunk back to her house. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Just I mean, and driving. in the 40s, it probably wasn't considered a big deal. So, yeah. Right. Fortunately. It absolutely was not. <laughs> And fortunately, or five at six in the morning, probably very few people are out. So uh, yay, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then while Connor's with Dexter, Connor tells Dexter that a girl like Tracy is one in a million. She's sort of like a queen. So even Connor here is sort of alluding to Tracy as like something above. And you can't treat her like normal women. So it almost feels like Connor's sort of scolding Dexter in a way here. Yeah, because he was so harsh with her, I think. He yeah. didn't appreciate that. He says that. And I love the way that uh, Dexter's like, well, you know, George Kitteridge something or other. And Connor doesn't like George either. He's like, ah, that guy only cares about himself. <laughs> Nobody likes George. While we're talking about George for a minute, isn't he really much like in a Ralph Bellamy role in this? Doesn't that doesn't it feel that way? I do not understand that reference well enough. So please tell us more. Yeah. Ralph Bellamy in a lot of these earlier romantic comedies and whatnot, he was always the other guy, the one that's a little mm. boring, a little staid, not as charismatic as the as the main lead, and he's the guy who eventually gets tossed to the side. And George Cut, like I, it's like George isn't great, but I also like do kind of feel bad for him in all of this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel bad for him as well. Like he's like. He was getting married. He was excited about it. I mean, on one hand, I think we're shown traits of George that show that maybe his interest in Tracy isn't purely like a love match. Like mm-hmm. he's like at the end, like because we're in the spoiler section, I can say this. Like at yeah. the end, he's going to dump her. Then he finds out the society pages are covering things and then he's in again. It's like, let's yeah. have bygones be bygones. Now, the one thing I'll argue is not all marriages are based on love. Sure. And that's, you know, valid for some people as well. But I just feel less sorry for him if he's not like real actually in love with Tracy getting gotcha. dumped. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I don't think you're going to be heartbroken for too long. You're probably going to find some other wealthy or well-to-do society person to get married to and you'll be fine. It's not mm-hmm. like George is like sitting there pining for Tracy, probably. But yeah, I, I agree. Like he's definitely, um, yeah, that guy in the movie. Like, like there's this movie yeah. called The Baxter, like that's about that character in a rom-com and he's the Baxter here. Yeah. Yep. Or the Ralph. I mean, from the from the get go, he's set up for us to not really like root for him. 
Yeah, he's he's really not given much of a personality, even. Like, he could be, like, in another movie, like, this guy who came up from nothing could be the inspirational hero. So we then come to, now Tracy and Connor, Connor has driven Tracy home, and I think we cut to them basically dancing, like, by themselves, like, in a grassy area. And everybody yeah. else has gone home, and they're in the moonlight. And at this point in the movie, okay, I was 100% sure that these two were going to end up together. I was like, this right here, this is the Philadelphia story. I'm like, yeah. okay, Jimmy Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, this makes sense. Like, this guy comes out of nowhere, finally understands you, and has this dance in the moonlight with you. They're both drunk, of course, like, which mm -hmm. maybe isn't always the ideal way to get together. But, like, you know, I was like, whatever. They, they work. They liked each other at the library, too. And uh, mm -hmm. this is a clip of these two then talking and Connor making his case to Tracy. Tracy. What do you want? You're wonderful. <laughs> There's a magnificence in you, Tracy. Now, I'm getting self-conscious. It's funny, I... Mike, that's... Yeah? I don't know. Go up, I guess. It's late. The magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. You're lit from within, Tracy. You've got fires banked down in you. Hearth fires and holocausts. I don't seem to you made of bronze. No, you're made out of flesh and blood. That's the blank, unholy surprise of it. Why, oh, you're the golden girl, Tracy. Full of life and warmth and delight. Oh, what goes on? You've got tears in your eyes. Shut up, shut up. Oh, Mike, keep talking, keep talking, talk, will you? I've stopped. Why? Has your mind taken hold again, dear professor? A good thing, don't you? Don't you agree? No, professor. All right, lay off that professor stuff now. Do you hear me? Yes, professor. It's really all I am to you, is it? Of course, professor. Are you sure? Why, yes. Yes, of course. It can't be anything like love, can it? No, no, it mustn't be. It can't. Would it be inconvenient? Terribly. Anyway, I know it isn't. Oh, Mike, we're out of our minds. Right into our hearts. That music. It does, doesn't it? Tracy, oh, you're so as if my insteps were melting away. What is it? Have I got feet of clay or something? Tracy. It's not part of the pool. It's just over the lawn and in the birch grove. It'll be lovely now. Tracy, you're tremendous. Put me in your pocket, Mike. Okay, H how is that not the end game of the movie? I'm sorry, you guys can defend the end game of the movie if you want here, but I'm just saying, how is that not the end game? I I, I don't know, because that their chemistry is so great. Um, yeah, 
I love them together. <laughs> Jokingly, it's because Jimmy Stewart is not Cary Grant. But ser- Jimmy but Stewart ser- is hotter than Cary but, Grant. <laughs> but 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 on, on a serious note, the thing that I like about how it sets that up to be the end point and then isn't like I, I will get to it at the end. I feel the ending is very rushed, but that happened mm. with a lot of movies at that time. Mm. But I, I like that it's it it's almost a mystery setup with the pacing of that, because you really do think that these two are going to end up together. And I like that it flips that script at the end. I don't like the way it does it, mm. but I, f- I find this one of the more effective love triangles in movies of that time period. Mm. I think, I think honestly, I think your, um, your uh, affection for Cary Grant may be <laughs> affecting this too. Yes. I'm abs- I am absolutely biased on that. Yes. Cary Grant can do no wrong. Even when he's like not a good person in a movie. Cause like, there's movies he's been worse than this. And I'm just yeah. like, because hmm. I'm like Jimmy Stewart here. I'm just like, he is on fire and I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm there for it. And I'm like, if some dude said this stuff, he's saying to like, he's saying to Tracy to me, I would be like, yes, yes, I'm in, I mean, put me in your pocket. I'd be, I'd be there. I mean, even though of course now Holocaust sounds a lot worse than it did in 1940, of course, but uh, mm-hmm. the rest parts, like you've got fire banked down deep inside of you. I'd be like, yes, you saw me. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. And, and and just and then and when they kiss, like there's it's a great kiss, like fantastic, better than any other kiss that we see in this movie. And she's obviously affected by it. She said she's melting away. It's like, yeah, that guy go with that. Now, guy. <laughs> and this goes back to like an earlier point that I said. So this is the drunk scene. Mm-hmm. This is the scene where she is at her most open up until this point, mm-hmm. having the most fun. And I mean, I everyone has a different relationship to alcohol in a lot of cases, at least in my experience, if somebody is different under the use of a substance, like substantially different in terms of their personality, Mm -hmm. it's because that's kind of their core that's getting released. Like not, not to talk about myself too much, but like drunk me is the same as Mimi, except I will fall down more. (laughs) And then the other thing about this that I honestly did not pick up, but like, I feel like there's a little like DS vibe going there with her, the way she calls him professor all the time. And that also kind of tracks for somebody who's that type A who might want someone else to take charge. Okay. I wouldn't have gone there with that. Like I do, th- I think the professor, I think the professor thing was more like referring to her, like criticizing Mike, like the way that he's like, she's been criticized. Like you are too much in your head you are too aloof you are because there's a previous scene where she's calling a professor where she's talking about like you keep yourself at a distance from things or something like that but i won't say that there couldn't be a subconscious thing there as well i don't have enough experience being drunk so it's hard for me to say how i'm personally affected like i don't think it's probably great to base an entire relationship off of people being drunk one night but at the same time like I feel like they had established something between those two before that like show that they had a rapport you know, they have opened up a little bit. I feel it does loosen Tracy up a little bit to be a little more honest. I don't think they're at least uh, Connor isn't so far gone because, you know, he's he steps back after the kiss, mm-hmm. you know, and and he's like, maybe this isn't such a good idea, don't you think? And so I don't think they're so far. At least he isn't so far gone, you know, where he can't make good decisions. 
I also do appreciate that later in the movie, Connor says that he didn't like take advantage of Tracy, like, um, like in her room, because you don't do that sort of thing. You were drunk. There's rules about that sort of thing. And I'm like, yay, good, good job. 1940 movie. (laughs) You did better than 16 candles. (laughs) 100% cheese. Connor. Seek. Yeah, Connor. 100% 100% kind. Okay. And, and Tra- or, sorry, I was calling you Tracy now, Sophia. So Sophia, like, do you, where, where do you come down on the Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart thing? Cause I'm digging the Jimmy Stewart vibe here, the intensity, like where, where's your allegiance in general? Uh, you know, I don't think I, initially when I first saw it, probably like, oh yes, of course, uh, you know, Cary Grant character wants her back and that's who they should end up with. I guess I didn't question what the story was wanting to do, but, um, yeah, looking at it now, it's like, yeah, kind of rooting for this. Um, but I was asking you just a hotness question here. Like, I just want to, oh, I want to break the tie on this one. <laughs> oh, golly, <laughs> they're just so different. I don't know. Okay, Tough one. It's I gonna. Can't, I it remains. Right it now. remains tied. Then Jim, one yep. for Jimmy Stewart, one for Cary Grant. So Ed's, Ed's choice probably here. wins with most people. But yeah. <laughs> So Tracy and Connor run off and George enters now because he had tried to call Tracy earlier and she didn't answer the phone because she was downstairs in the moonlight with Connor. And so he's come to check on her, at which point Dexter also enters and he sees the two champagne glasses and that Tracy has taken off her bracelet and her engagement ring, which he pockets. And he tries to get George out of the way, but it's too late. We hear Connor singing somewhere over the rainbow and he's in a swimming bathrobe. Tracy's in a swimming bathrobe and he's carrying Tracy. They're still kind of, kind of drunk. And he's singing. And in fact, he's singing. In fact, someday over the rainbow rather than somewhere over, over the, the rainbow. rainbow. Yeah. It's pretty great. So the implication is, is that, you know, they've had sex and George is freaking out and, Dexter, I don't know what Dexter's thinking here for sure, uh, but he's trying to cover up for everybody, but also get rid of George. It's actually Dexter who punches Connor and yeah. then George runs off and he's and Connor's like, what's that all about? And Dexter's like, it's better for me than him, <laughs> than George. I don't know. Thoughts on this scene, this little interchange? And eh, not really. To me, it just like advances the plot more or less. Like I just, I do feel like the way that Tracy says hello to everybody though, still implies that she would be, she would, she'd be with Connor instead of Dexter or George. Sure. Yeah. She's like, hello, Dexter. And then she's like, hello, George. <laughs> and then looks at, looks at Connor and's like, hello. And so happy. And, and then Connor takes her to her room. So the next morning, Half past 12 on the wedding day. Everyone's hungover, not surprisingly. Tracy can't remember what she did last night until Dexter reminds her and Dinah tells her. At the end of all of that brouhaha with Dexter and Connor and Tracy, Dinah has been watching from her window. She saw Connor take Tracy to her room and... Dinah is under the impression that they also messed around and is like, don't I, don't I need to tell somebody about this? Like, what's my, my obligation here? And so it's Dinah that's telling Tracy what she saw and what they did. Cause Tracy doesn't 
entirely remember. And importantly, Dinah wants to break up the wedding with George. She doesn't like George. Yes. I don't know if she wants yeah. her to be with Connor either, but she definitely doesn't like George. So she wants this thing over. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing to me about Tracy is that, you know, she apologized to her father because now she thinks she's apparently done something wrong. And like in my head, I'm like, that's just because you do something wrong doesn't negate that other people also do wrong things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, even though we know now that she didn't necessarily do anything wrong, it's still that it takes that to to just bring that response to her. Like she feels like a hypocrite in some way just kind of goes to the whole like I I just think Tracy in general is ha, has trained herself to be uptight. I I still I still see that and I feel like mm-hmm. that is kind of a change for her because I think she realizes that maybe she was buying in too much to the whole pedestal goddess thing that everybody was foisting upon her. Mm. I think it's because your entire family is like vaguely emotionally abusing her. <laughs> It's like, (laughs) seriously, like feeling inappropriate guilt for things that aren't your fault. Like, I don't know. Like, like, I mean, it's, it is sure it's her fault that she decided to drink and then like, I guess cheated somewhat on her fiance, but like feeling that in any way, the feelings she had for her father were wrong. I feel that's more like what other people have put on her. Like, in my opinion, like, I'm very sensitive to when people try to make you feel guilty for things you didn't do. And her dad has tried to make her feel guilty for his own cheating. And like her mother, right. like wants her to feel guilty for not letting her father there when her mother could have made her own decision. I, I yeah, yeah. I, I feel like Tracy has apologizes because she's been made to feel like she's wrong for her entire, who knows how many years, but for many years she's been made to feel like she's the problem. And finally she's just like, well, now that I've done one thing wrong, I'm, they must all be right about me. I must actually be the problem. I don't know. Right. Uh, there's one thing about, um, you know, being forgiving of human foibles, like people fuck up. We all make mistakes, that kind of thing. But like her dad didn't like just, her dad was like, eh, I'm an old guy. I got to go, you know, prove I'm still somebody and shack up with a dancer. So versus like, I don't know, Tracy's going through stuff and not sure what to do and, yeah, and did the, a little bit. Did the yeah. father apologize to the mother? Like that would have been a I good thing. You know? <laughs> like, honest to God, apologize to his whole family. What kind of example is he setting for the women in his life? You're a bad man. So okay, there you go. There's my little <laughs> my little soapbox. Yeah, he's an ass. I guess. Yeah, I and I also I don't necessarily view. You know, I don't think Tracy's necessarily like uptight. Like it's just like she might you know, enjoy different things. So she definitely enjoys riding a horse. She definitely enjoys going to the library. I mean, those are good things to do too. I mean, I I just feel like she probably there's part of her that feels like she can't, she, she probably has inhibitions. Sure. But I think that probably speaks more to like what was expected of women. I mean, even now, like if you're, if you're sexually promiscuous, you get bagged on or if you're like sexually assertive you get bagged on a little bit like in the 40s my god like i don't know like i I can't blame women for being uptight when when they're not uptight they're called sluts basically i don't know Mm. that's what i'm Mm -hmm. saying and like and alcohol was used as a way to like help people not worry about that but it's a double-edged sword really for women well as i said there wasn't they didn't have therapy like everybody, you drink because you don't got there, you don't got therapy, <laughs> therapy and meds, man. 
what a time to live in. So, so then after that, though, uh, Dexter and Tracy are sitting by the wedding cake and, uh, you know, reminiscing about the true love, which is a nice callback with the quote, my, she was Yar. I wasn't, was I? That's kind of Tracy, like Tracy's now sort of her way of apologizing to Dexter, which again, I'm a little uncomfortable with. I think Dexter's done more to earn the audience's good graces with like what he's trying to do for Tracy by like keeping this story from being published. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like, and Yar, like again, Yar means like in some ways easy to handle. So Mm -hmm. she's basically saying I wasn't easy to handle (laughs) because that's what wives are supposed to be. Like, I'm sorry. I don't mean to beg on this so much, but it just like, it it gets me in my, in my feminism a little bit. No, 100%. I was, yeah, that's annoying. I mean, especially like, you know, Dexter says early on, like, you know, because she criticizes his drinking and he's like, well, you took that on when you married me. I mean, that doesn't sound like he was so easy to handle. Why is, why is, uh, is she expected to just like, you know? Now, here's where I'm going to jump in from a relationship perspective. Do it. These two should not be together. <laughs> there is somebody for whom. Tracy is easy to handle and there is somebody for whom Dexter is easy to handle. I, I, I volunteer as tribute for Dexter. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think Connor would work for Tracy. Honestly, like I think she, he doesn't need to handle her because she's already perfect to him and he's already perfect to her. And so like, that's what you want. Like you want someone where it's just like, yeah, this is, this is right. You know? So it's like, I mean, it's it's good to change and to like be in relationships with people who can teach you things too. But it's like if it's so at odds that you want to change somebody's basic personality, that's a problem, right? Yeah. So Tracy and Dexter have this kind of touching moment, I guess. Uh, and George <laughs> breaks up with Tracy via a letter, which she's reading in front of Connor and Liz and Dexter and George is like, how could you say this and read it in front of everybody? And he's like, your conduct and blah, blah, blah. And so she's like going to let them, let him go. But when he finds out from Connor that nothing happened, that he put her to bed only two kisses, you know, George is ready to kind of be like, well, okay, let's well, what, try. Well, well, at first he's like, well, okay. If you will never drink again, like basically never touch right. the stuff again. Like that's his first, like, okay. And she refuses that. But it's like when the society, when he finds out the society people are there, importantly, the society pages want to do a story on it. That's when he's like, okay, let's let bygones be bygones. And that's where George loses my sympathy. I'm just like, eh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, yeah, Tracy eventually just breaks up with George. And so now we have a single, unfianced Tracy. And the wedding is literally about to begin. Like, who told them to start playing this wedding music, by the way? I don't know. Can I just say how the mom is so freaking weird here? Okay, she's yes, just fl- please. She's just flitting about being like, oh, isn't it all so lovely? Blah, blah, blah. Completely oblivious to like, you know, can't read the room with all these people <laughs> in this triangle and George here and there and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, let's go. Here's the reverend and blah, blah, blah. And and it's, she almost is like reacts to Connor like she's never met him before. Did you hmm. catch that where she's oh, like, yeah. oh, and who are you? Oh, Julius's friend. That's right. And off she goes. It's like, no, where have you been? She's, she's like, like the only one who went to bed early last night, I think, probably. <laughs> she missed everything. Yeah. I and suppose. then she's wearing like this weird hat. So yeah, that probably adds to the effect of her being wacky. But yeah, 
So Connor, Tracy, Dexter, Liz, they all run to this uh, to the room where the wedding is supposed to take place, where all the guests are waiting behind this door, ready to go. And, um, you know, Tracy's freaking out. And she, her parents come around the corner and they're like, don't worry, honey, we've just bumped into George. It's no big deal. Your father will say, you know, some words and it will be just fine. And she's like, no, I, I don't want to be let out of this. I will handle this. And so while Tracy's stressing out about this, Connor actually like asks Tracy to marry him. And mm-hmm. yeah, just out of the, nowhere. And I was like, okay, this is the moment they're going to get together. And like, but Tracy instead says no. And then mm-hmm. she says, I don't think Liz would like it. And like, Liz, they already had cut to Liz and CK and like showed them both looking really sad and ashen and so forth. And I'm like, to me, like, if I were Liz, this would not be much of a consolation to me. <laughs> like, that, right. that Tracy says no to him. I'd be kind of, I'd be like, mm, I may, might get myself a new journalist to be in love with if I were Liz. But yeah, that's me. So at this point, though, after Tracy has said no to Connor or Mike, whatever we want to call him, we get words from Dexter. Dexter is telling Tracy what to say to the gathered wedding guest. And she starts repeating after him. Stop that music. I'm terribly sorry to have kept you waiting, but there's been a slight hitch in the proceedings. I've made a terrible fool of myself, which isn't unusual. And my fiancé, my fiancé that was, that is, he thinks we better call it a day. And I quite agree with him. Peace is wonderful. Uh, uh, Dexter, Dexter, what next? Two years ago, I did you out of a wedding in this house by eloping to Maryland. Two years ago, uh, you were invited Nadia, to a wedding just in this alone. house. Just alone. Put the swing in the best part. Don't have a bad Then hold in your hand. Uh, which was very bad manners. Which was very bad manners. But I hope to make it up to you by going through with it now as originally planned. But I hope to make it up to you by... By going beautifully through with it now. As originally and most... Beautiful, Lady Lamb. Sophie, just keep your seats for a minute. Sophie, just keep your seats a minute. That's all. Um, that's all. Dex, are you sure? Not the least row risky, will you? You bet. You didn't do it just to soften the blow. No, Tracy. Not to save my face. Oh, it's a nice little face. Oh, Dex, I'll be yarn now. I'll promise to be yarn. Be whatever you like. You're my redhead. You all set? All set. Best man? Honored, CK. Maid of Honor? Matron of Honor. Remember Joe Smith. Oh, how did this ever happen? So, yeah, so you guys probably don't remember necessarily the first time you watched this. Was this a surprise to you at the time? I think maybe you implied that it was, Ed, when you said like it was like a mystery almost. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And the thing that I love about this, and I know you might not agree with it, is this is one of the only times in the movie where Tracy seems genuinely happy (laughs) about (laughs) the way things are proceeding. Mm. Like you just see that you hear it in her voice and you see it on her face when, when, when this is happening. And I don't know. It kind of tugs my heartstrings a bit. She does seem happy. I also wish Gary Grant would tell me that I had a nice face. (laughs) 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 This this is me just crushing on Gary Grant this this entire episode. That's fine. That's that's okay. I I, I support it. Um, When, if we ever do an episode on a Chris Evans movie, this, that will be me. So funny yeah i mean she does seem happy i just 
I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I'll be Yar now. I'll promise to be Yar. I'm just like, it, the, the, for me, it's, it's more the theming of the movie. The theming of the movie seems to suggest that if you are a woman, the way to be happy is to be easy to handle and compliant. And like the problem with Tracy all along is that she was not these things and that's why she couldn't be happy. And so it kills the joy for me, unfortunately. Like I, you know, I think maybe for some women, maybe that would make them happy because we live in it, especially then we lived in a society where to go against the grain oftentimes would get you kind of ostracized, but man, I just want Tracy to be able to be happy and also have whatever standard she has or just, you know, have her independence. It makes me a little worried. That's all. And, and you were what saying too, I'm sorry, I want to chase this for a second. And Ed, you were saying too, that they shouldn't be together. Like even in this moment, like, do you still feel that or like, no, no, I'm, I'm a big sap. I'm just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So if I didn't mean to interrupt you, you got some stuff. Oh, no, that's okay. I think it's interesting because it's, I feel like it's so opposite from Catherine Hepburn herself, mm. you know, that the only way to make her come back is to play this, you know, kind of tough as nails yet actually slightly submissive in the end. And, uh, and now her career is golden. You know what I'm saying? Where in real yes. life she was like, she, you know, she took control of her career. She bought her contract out. She, you know, worked with Philip Barry on this. She had control of the script. You know, yeah. she chose her leading men. So very, oh, yeah. very uh, uh, interesting. Yeah. And when in you read in, when, when, when you read the film history about this, that's exactly what they say, that this is her comeback. And it showed that she wasn't just tough, but also vulnerable. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> like, I know, I know, I know, right. Stuff, people will write this stuff without thinking to themselves, hmm. I mean, I wonder if this is a problem like, yeah. that she couldn't just be like awesome without, you know, like, I don't know. It's like she brought down a peg or something like that. Like her yeah. reputation in this movie is in a lot of ways playing on what her reputation in Hollywood was like being a statue right. or a goddess or like above people. So, yeah. So we have this little wedding and Connor and Liz are the bridesmaid and the best man as we heard. And the, the kicker of the whole thing is that, while they're all standing at the altar, we get a Sydney kid comes in. The guy from spy magazine is somehow there. And despite the fact he was blackmailed, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> right. Right. So all the time that they're like in the, in the garden talking about being Yar and George breaking up with her and Tracy breaking up with him and blah, blah, blah. There's still this, there's this conversation floating around about like, Oh, um, Mr. Kid called for you, uh, Dexter. And he says, you've won this round. And, um, and then, Oh, Mr. Kid is on his way and, and they're all going to confront kid, but first they're going to get married. And then kid is there. And right at the end, he breaks out his camera and clicks on all four of them. Yeah. And uh, it is a great so, way to end it though. I will say it's like yeah. a great way to end the movie and like bring it back to that whole journalistic subplot that was going on. It's like, we got the story after all you couldn't hide yeah. it from us. Yeah. Do you guys have final thoughts about the ending of this movie? Uh, you know, this part of this thing about why Tracy ends up with Dexter again is like, because divorce in this time was frowned upon mm -hmm. the fact that she gets remarried to this first husband kind of thing like it it smooths it over yeah because uh, it comes up again in other romantic comedies it's a, it's a theme it's a trend in the 30s and 40s for remarriage romantic comedies 
Jen, do you want to talk about this part? Yeah, I mean, I just found this out. Like, I I haven't seen, and Ed, you've seen probably more classic movies, and possibly, Sophia, you have too than I have. But, like, I came upon an article that was basically talking about there's so many of these, like, remarriage movies that were happening around the same time. Like, The Awful Truth, He Married His Wife, Love Crazy, Bedtime Story, That Uncertain Feeling, Palm Beach Story, a lot more of these. And I read a piece about this. The guy was theorizing that like these movies, like these remarriage movies might have been like sort of a conservative reaction to the social freedoms people were pushing for in the 1920s. So and it could have could it, add, could it would, also be the Hayes Code. Like what do you- I was going to say, I, I absolutely disagree with it. It is a thing in the Hayes Code that divorce cannot be portrayed as a good thing. Right. So yeah. in a lot of cases, it it goes back to that, that it's it's divorcing the divorce and reunifying yeah. And that was a thing that the Hayes Code pushed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a conservative reaction? Yes, but not from the studios or anything. It was coming from the code. Yeah, yeah. So, and it also, I guess in some ways, it gives you the opportunity to have people acting more licentiously than they might otherwise because they have already been married. They're, you know, they're not right. before married people. They're wise and experienced people or something. But yeah, yeah. It's an interesting theme. I haven't seen too many of these other movies. Have you guys seen a lot of these other ones? One of them is in my double features. Oh, okay. Very good. Okay. Like, I think I already have some ideas about this. Um, I think for Ed to make an honest answer about this, he would have to imagine somebody besides Cary Grant in the role. (laughs) But um, if you were Tracy at the end of this movie, whom would you choose, if anyone, to marry? From, From an outside perspective, she and Connor are a better match. I will give you that. So, um, I think it'd be kind of good for Tracy to be on her own a little bit, like really live, you know, I don't know, take some time in a relationship maybe before just be like, let's get married right away. I don't know. That is so very rational of you. And I appreciate it. And I think like, <laughs> and if I were feeling rational, I would say the same thing. But I'm, I'm going with Connor on this one. I just, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, gr- grab him while he's there. I'm sorry, Liz. Sorry. But it wasn't going to work out for you anyway. He's just going to find, like, Kim Novak or something and go off with her. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay. And what do you guys think will happen with Tracy and Dexter? Will it be true love this time? Yes. I think we're, we're made to believe that they've both had some growth. Dexter's had, like, two years. and. You know, this 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 one epiphany for Tracy is going to seal the deal. I guess Dexter did say he'd been to several sanatoriums for alcoholism. So maybe that took. I don't know. We'll see. And Ed, any opinion about their the future of their relationship? I want to believe it'll work. Yeah. yeah. I don't, but I want to. <laughs> the the one thing I think that they have going for them is like the fact that they've known each other for a very long time. They yeah. he's in with her family. And if she's decided that she's going to be Yar, that she's going to be compliant, yeah, I guess it might work out for her. I just like um I hope she doesn't lose her spirit. That's all I'm going to say about that cuz I think he likes her spirit too and he would be sorry if it was gone. Yeah. And just me being me, I hope he doesn't lose his spirits because that's the part of me I see in that character. <laughs> I mean, I think he needs to lose some of them. <laughs> like, doesn't sound like it's worked out too well for him in the past. I mean, I mean, to, in a in a completely serious note, like 
it does worry me, like some of the dialogue in this movie implying that he's drinking and he, he wanted to be a writer at one time, drinking and beating his wife. Like that worries me, you know, like I think there's, I think that was supposed to be tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah, yeah. But like, the, like he was, they did divorce because of cruelty and drunkenness. So we don't know what right. the cruelty implies. The very first scene in the movie, he's pushing her over by the face. It's just kind yeah. of like, is this a man who can actually drink and handle it? Or is this a man yeah, who like needs to stay away from it? Like, there's definitely. Well, I don't know. He doesn't drink throughout the whole film, even when uh, Connor comes over and has the champagne bottle right That's in front true. of him. That's true. That's true. So quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's see. Oh, yeah. I really would quickly too. Like, Ed, you're the one who brought it to my attention. I mean, I probably would have figured it out in the end anyway. But you brought it to my attention that this that High Society, a 1956 musical, is also a remake of the Philadelphia Story. And I just really quickly wanted to talk about that one a little and how it kind of. Oh differs. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In all fairness, the plot stuff doesn't really change all that much. The characters are the characters. We don't really have a, a, as strong of a Liz in this a, a, as we do in, in the Philadelphia story. But uh, the the music and lyrics are written by Cole Porter, which if, if, if I have a weakness for Cary Grant as an actor, <laughs> I have a weakness for Cole Porter as a composer and lyricist. Yep. Yep. Uh, Bing Crosby plays CK Dexter Haven. Frank Sinatra plays Connor. Grace Kelly plays Tracy. And I mean, time has passed since the original. So some of the things that are more troubling in, in the first aren't as prevalent here. Yeah. And I do love that the, uh, the boat in the first becomes the, the love theme in the second. Wait, what? It, the, the boat, tr- the true love it mm. becomes the song in high society. And and that's just a great intimate moment between Dexter and Tracy in that, like the flashback to them singing the song while on the boat. Yeah. That's like one thing that really made high society made uh, Dexter more believable for Tracy for me is that they did have a flashback. Also in that flashback, Bing Crosby's like freaking playing the accordion while cuddling with her. I'm just like, that's impressive to me (laughs) or like this tiny accordion. It might not actually be an accordion. (laughs) Oh, one of those little tiny hand ones. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. One of those big full body ones. Oh, okay. I'm like that is oddly smooth to be like uh, making out and playing an accordion at the same time. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and they the other thing I like about High Society is they don't actually have Connor propose to Tracy at the end. I feel like Connor that makes him a little bit more likable and makes me happier for him and the Liz of that movie, like maybe having some mm-hmm. success. I do like the Philadelphia story better though, despite all this, it's weird. Like now that maybe, maybe I've been like, maybe I'm have Stockholm syndrome. Cause I've seen it more times. It, it, it's a better, the Philadelphia story is a better movie. I think, I think it's a better made movie. I think it's, I don't think musicals usually fall into that category in the same way, mm. but because high society is a musical mm-hmm. and it's a musical by Cole Porter, like that one gets my, my edge. Yeah. Okay. So you do prefer high society then? Oh okay. yeah. 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 Cause I, I can sing along to it. That's true. That is true. Yeah. You can only in Philadelphia story, you can only sing along to Lydia, the tattooed lady, <laughs> which by the <laughs> way, I had that song stuck in my head for the entire week. So that was fun. Awesome. So for double feature recommendations, um, I came into this movie, not really liking Catherine Hepburn a whole bunch. And I also came in after my first viewing of the Philadelphia story, not really liking that movie so much. And so the movie that kind of started changing my mind on Catherine Hepburn and these creators was holiday from 1938. 
And that's very interesting because the same director, writers, and Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn are all in Holiday. But why I liked it, it's just a way different story. It has a way different um, theme around class, too. The movie Holiday is basically Cary Grant is going is a lower class guy or middle class guy who's going to marry this rich woman. And he doesn't realize that she's rich until he comes over to her house. And the rich woman is just very like, she likes being privileged. She likes her class. Like, I think she expects that Cary Grant's character is going to change to be more like her. When Cary Grant's at this house, he meets her sister played by Catherine Hepburn and they begin to have an attraction. And Catherine Hepburn's rich is also rich, but she's more down to earth. And so I like what the movie was saying more in terms of like, like the rich aren't necessarily, but they don't necessarily know better about things. I also like how the movie's saying that like, you should be with someone that you don't have to change for. So it's kind of almost like the opposite, weirdly, almost the opposite theme of the Philadelphia story, but by the same playwright. So very hmm. odd. And I found Catherine Hepburn quite charming in this. Cary Grant also like does like a cartwheel or something or like a, like, I can't remember what the actual term for it is. He does some tumbling like gymnastics what? in this movie. <laughs> what? No, he, he did. He did start off as an acrobat. Yeah. Oh, that's right, true. Yeah. The juggling acrobat. Oh, fantastic. So you, you get to see a totally different side of him in that movie and I, and all of them in that movie. And so I really liked it. Have you guys seen this one holiday? No. Yes. Okay. Well, of course you have. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. So my first, my first one is, another divorce get back together movie with Cary Grant, the awful truth this time paired with Irene Dunn and uh, Ralph Bellamy is the character in this one that I said that George feels like (laughs) he's not as obnoxious as George, but he is just kind of dull and not as engaging as the lead played by Cary Grant. Uh, And it's a little bit more screwball comedy than, than the Philadelphia story. So that's my first. I chose uh, His Girl Friday, Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, 1940, another divorce, get back together. Ralph Bellamy is the <laughs> schlub that she's going to get back with or going to marry. And, but De- or, I just called him Dexter. Sorry. In this one, he's Walter Burns. She gets back together with him. This is really good. It's got a lot of substance, I thought. The woman character, Rosalind Russell's character, is the news reporter, and they're c- kind of competing news reporters. So I love this one. Very good one. And the dialogue is just, the patter is just so fast and quick and, yes. and, and snappy. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that fast talk and awesome classic stuff. Nice. So mm-hmm. I'm going to bring another Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn movie to the table. And I will have you guys know that I tried to watch all of their appearances together, but Sylvia Scarlet was very weird. And I only got like 30 minutes into it. Have you guys seen Sylvia Scarlet, by the way? No, no. it is very weird. And um, <laughs> Cary Grant is like talking in what might be his actual British accent. I don't know. It's like a lower class oh. British accent. Totally. Anyway, huh. I'm not recommending that as a double feature recommendation because I haven't even sat through the whole thing myself yet, but it is an oddity. So I did, however, watch the entirety of Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, one of their other movies, Bringing Up Baby from 1938. I recall trying to watch that a long time ago and not liking it. And I think it was because I just wasn't prepared for the screwball comedy as a genre Mm -hmm. at that time. And now, Mm -hmm. like knowing what it was, I was able to appreciate it and like having my expectations managed in advance. I think there's some really funny comic work between Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn in this. Their characters are so much different than they are in the Philadelphia story. I like Cary Grant as a befuddled professor. I actually find him hotter as a befuddled professor than I do as like Mm. the smooth, like socialite guy. Um, 
Yeah. And Catherine Hepburn is so funny and off the wall and goofy in this movie. And there's also like a, like a leopard. Yeah. It's like a leopard. Yes. There's also a leopard and a dog. So like, how can you not love a movie with leopards and dogs running around everywhere? I mean, come on. So that's another double feature. So my, my next one is the thin man, which I could functionally make my double feature for almost any (laughs) other movie. It's my go-to like, Oh, you think classic movies are boring? Watch this. It is a, Mystery, so it's based off a Dashiell Hammett novel. Uh, it is a comedy. It's a romance. It actually, Nick and Nora Charles are my favorite on-screen couple in anything. I love their marriage. I love the interaction between William Powell and Myrna Loy. Interesting connection to bringing up Baby. The dog in that is the dog in the Thin Man series. Uh, that same dog <laughs> plays Asta, the dog. Uh, it's a little screwball. It's a little camp. It's a little serious. I, I I cannot speak highly enough about especially the earlier movies in the Thin Man series. And Jimmy Stewart has a connection because, as we said earlier, he is in the sequel. Dude, I know this is a terrible reason to watch this movie now. I've been meaning to watch it. But like now that you told me the same dogs in the movie, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go <laughs> watch it for the dog. <laughs> Whatever the catalyst. I think it's great. Go for yeah. it. So my next one is uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is from 1967. And I chose it because it's one of Catherine Hepburn's great performances. I think she won the Oscar for it. Um, It's also another Hepburn-Tracy Spencer collaboration. And as we know, they had a long affair and they did many films together. And it's got Sidney Poitier and he's so fantastic. It's a great film, you know, about this, this husband and wife who their daughter comes home with her fiance, who is an older black man. And they are all wrestling with that. And uh, they consider themselves, you know, pretty progressive and open-minded. And now when it's in your house, you got to really look at yourself and it's, it's beautiful. This is a fantastic film, beautiful performances. So my final recommendation is not a classic movie, but it is a movie about a wedding where people are trying to avoid publicity. And it's called Mm -hmm. The Decoy Bride from 2011. And basically this movie is about a actress and her fiance who's a writer. They're going to try to go and have a out of the way wedding in Scotland where the press won't like catch on to them getting married. And the press do catch on that they're on this island. So they wrangle this like local woman into serving as a decoy bride. And so the paparazzi will follow her instead of the actual marriage party. And this is a movie where this decoy bride is thrown together quite often with the groom. And so it becomes a love triangle with the groom, his actual bride, and this decoy bride. And it's a charming, like, sort of little movie. I liked it a lot. Um, And I just think it goes well with our wedding theme. My last one is another... Grant and Hepburn pairing, but a different Hepburn (laughs) with Audrey Hepburn charade from 1963. It kind of brings back a lot of the screwball elements. It adds some danger. It adds some thrills. It's often called the best non Hitchcock Hitchcock film. And it's just so much fun. Okay. Coming up to my final one. I chose runaway bride from 1999 with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. And it has wedding elements and it has a journalist coming in and, criticizing and observing uh you know this woman who keeps going to get married and then runs away at the altar at the last minute and and it's a great pairing of julia roberts and richard gear 
Yeah, I think so. I think we have like some great choices for everybody for double features. And um, we've got one more movie in the wedding, maybe two more, but at least one more movie in the wedding series coming up, The Wedding Planner. And thank you guys so much again for coming on the show. Uh, remember to check out Ed's podcast, The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly, especially if you're a karaoke fan. But I think there's something to enjoy for other people as well. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.